Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. And Paul Bananos, Associate Editor. On today's pod, it's the end of an era at Roche as the Swiss Pharma unveils its new CEO. And buckle up, turbulence ahead in Washington. User fee negotiations are up in the air. And we check in on what is happening with drug pricing and Build Back Better, as well as President Biden's nominee for an NCI director. But first, today's pod is brought to you by BioCentury and Bay Helix's East-West Biopharma Summit, the conference which incorporates our ninth China Healthcare Summit will take place in the San Francisco Bay Area November 14th through 16th with virtual attendance and option. Learn more and register at biocenturyeastwest.com. All right, Paul, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's the end of an era at Roche. Severin Schwan is preparing to hand off the CEO role to diagnostics head Thomas Schinnaker. Can you tell us about what's going on here and, and why they picked Schinnaker to be the next man on top? Well, sure. Yeah. So Severin Schwan is passing the baton after about 14 years, and that's in the CEO role. He's been there much longer than that, too. He's still in line to be chairman when the succession happens. They have a, a nomination process for that. But um, the CEO role is going to Thomas Schinnaker, effective March 2023. Schinnaker is CEO of the company's diagnostics unit, which accounted for about 30% of revenue last year versus uh, 70% for pharmaceuticals. It was the faster growing side of the house on a percentage basis. And part of that is, is thanks to COVID, COVID diagnostics, but the base business outside of COVID has grown too. So looking back a little bit, um, you know, Schwann took over as CEO not long before Roche acquired Genentech fully. You know, they had a stake in the business before. So he's really overseen a long era now. And during that time, Genentech's three biggest drugs lost patent exclusivity. So Roche had to come up with some big launches to offset that. You know a lot of the names, Tecentric, Pergeta, Cadsila in cancer, Ocrevus in MS, Hemlibra in hemophilia, Avrizdi in SMA. Those would be a few that have offset that erosion in revenue. I guess he'd look back at a fairly successful legacy, I suppose. And Jeff, I know that we also ran a stock chart, so you can always take that as it comes, whether you, you know, if you want to adjust for inflation or not. Um, but I think one of the overwhelming feelings you get about Roche, one person said to me they have good bones as a company. So, so one of the overwhelming feelings you got about Roche is the sort of good bones, but also a lot of stability, right? I mean, Severin had been, you know, a long timer himself. They've taken another long timer. I mean, they obviously take biology risks and so on, but you know, on the personnel front, they uh, they keep keep it in the family almost literally to speak. <laughs> yeah, the other the other thing that that you didn't mention, Paul, but but could have is also that he oversaw, I guess you call it the divestiture of uh, Novartis's stake in Roche, which I think is a is a big milestone. Mm-hmm. 
Um, as you mentioned, Schinnaker has been there uh, since 2003, shortly after receiving his doctorate in molecular biology, and he's been CEO of the Diagnostics Unit since 2019. Now, the, the Diagnostics Unit has uh, made a few big acquisitions in recent years, Paul. Uh, how, how have those factored into things? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting you bring it up. You know, this came up on the quarterly call last week, the same day that they announced the, the CEO transition about uh, some of the steps that uh, Schwann has taken to prepare Roche for the future. And I thought it was interesting. One question that he took during the Q&A was about how the company outspends its peers on R&D. I take that to mean R&D spend as a percentage of revenue. And Roche is and has been uh, at or near the top of the list in recent years. The answer he gave was about tying innovation to growth. And he singled out digital technology as an important driver of how innovation will continue at Roche. Um, I have the quote here I can give you. He said, there's no doubt that healthcare will get more digital. We can leverage data from the real world. We can leverage new advanced analytical tools. And that, again, will help us to innovate and tackle diseases which we couldn't in the past. And then to answer your question a bit more, if you look at what they've done, in 2018, they acquired Foundation Medicine and Flatiron Health. And those two were really designed to take deep looks at data at algorithmically and, and such. and um, you know, to sort of deepen their commitment to targeted therapeutics. And that includes diagnostics on the cancer side, for sure, targeted oncology. And then there's another thing. They, they also hired Aviv Regev to lead GRED, the Genentech Research and Early Development Unit. And when they did that, they were, they were really bringing in a computational scientist um, with particular expertise in single cell profiling. So that should give you an idea of the, the talent and the tools that Schinnaker will have to move forward. I mean, so that's how I've been looking at this. And I think it's really important because overwhelmingly, when we talk to people, there's massive notions about the importance and increase of data science, data science and digital for the future of biopharma. And Roche has really laid the track for that. And the new CEO is being handed really a fairly good deck of cards to deliver on that ability with, as you say, Aviv, that hiring has, as I said, sort of the chatter is that that was a really good hire, just in terms of she's an incredibly smart person and the right skill set to lead GRED at this point. I think the neighbors along the street, Novartis, have also made some inroads into digital. You know, different companies we're seeing make different plays there, but uh, I do think that that is a strategic decision by them. We'll see, you know, bringing in the head of the diagnostics unit. You pointed out, Paul, to us that they could have gone for the head of pharmaceuticals, but didn't um, if they wanted another long-time insider hire. So I don't know this was necessarily an obvious one to people on the outside, but um, certainly it, it makes sense. Yeah, they do seem to uh, like their continuity. Uh, I did note on our morning call that Roche did cite their 125-year history a few times in their in their press release. So it, it's obviously front and center for them, this sort of keeping it all in-house. Simone, I know you recently spoke to Novartis's new chief commercial officer. You sort of teased that there's some change going on there. Compare contrast, do you, do you see any trends among both? Yeah, interesting point. So I did sit down with Marie-France Tudin a short while ago, and you know, I know you covered that last week, but absolutely she is all about embedding digital and data throughout 
her view is of sales. So she actually wants to enable her sales and commercial operation, she, she commercial officer, she wants to enable the commercial operation to be data-driven. Nevada has had some forays into digital, some worked better than others. But if you want to take the temperature of the company, yeah, I mean, if Roche is this rock of stability, Novartis is a company in flux, do we say? I mean, they we know that they are letting go a lot of people as they realign. They are restructuring the whole organization. And there's no two ways about it. That's difficult. That's painful. And she did mention that there are, inside Novartis, people really buy into this. In fact, people inside Novartis have been saying we need to be more streamlined, but change is hard for them. So here you've got sort of, on the one hand, this huge farmer that is undergoing a huge structural change, embedding many of the same ideas about growth and rooting and things like digital and data as something like Roche. But Roche, as I said, gives off this sea of calm waters kind of impression. I don't know whether it's exactly like that on the inside, but, um, you know, compare and contrast is what you asked for me. So there you go. All right. Thanks for that, Paul and Simone. Um, obviously, we'll be following closely and we're, and we're watching how digital is getting embedded across biopharma, of course. Uh, constant theme in our coverage. I would like to turn to Steve in Washington. Steve, I know you were planning to focus on some other things in the past few days, but turbulence in Congress has meant other plans were in store for your Friday. That turbulence is buffeting legislation seeking to reauthorize FDA's medical product user fees, the so-called PDUFA legislation, as well as implement reforms to regulation of drugs, devices, other products. Steve, bring us up to speed. So I, I guess I've just got travel on my mind. I envision Washington right now through the lens of a, a summer travel metaphor, uh, probably for the best, some editors um, whose names won't be spoken, but who happen to be the other two people on this call, made me tone my story down a little bit. But the idea is that the user fee act reauthorizations like a plane. Members of Congress have been stuffing it full of luggage for months. Now Senator Burr comes along and he says, it doesn't fly unless you take all that stuff off the plane and only have the reauthorization of user fees for prescription drugs, generic drugs, medical devices, and biosimilars. And he has a lot of leverage. So a clean reauthorization uh, might happen. He might actually kick most or all of the baggage off the plane. Next, there's the Build Back Better bill, which has prescription drug price regulations in it. I envision the industry executives and lobbyists they're like people who've arrived at the gate 10 minutes before departure. They're banging on the door. They're trying to get in. They think Congress is on the verge of a huge mistake by giving small molecule drugs nine years before Medicare price regulation kicks in. Well, biologics will get 13. But that plane's taxing down the tarmac. Uh, they closed the gates five minutes before the executives got there. And the pilot's waiting for the all clear from air traffic control. It's possible the flight will be grounded, but if it is, it isn't going to be because of those farmer guys banging on the door. It's going to be because of something unrelated. And there are a lot of unrelated things that could that could cause it to stay on the, on the tarmac. Stay with me for a minute with this metaphor. On the other side of the terminal, President Joe Biden, he's standing in the departures lounge with a wad of boarding passes. He's just given one to Monica Bertignoli. Uh, if she makes it through security, which is Senate confirmation, She'll be the next NCI director, uh, the National Cancer Institute. 
And I'm confident that she'll be a great one. But Biden hasn't handed out all the boarding passes he's got. There's one there that has uh, NIH director written on it. But he hasn't announced who's going to get it. Time's running out. And if he doesn't do it soon, the person he picks may have to go through the confirmation process under Republican-controlled Senate, which could include a health committee chaired by Rand Paul. And, you know, good luck with that. I think that the time is running out if President Biden doesn't send a name up to the Senate. And really soon, it's quite likely that we might go the rest of his term without a uh, permanent confirmed NIH director. All right. So a couple of things there. Um, first of all, Jeff, there must be two other editors on the call because I'm not sure who else would get <laughs> no, no, I, no, I think he's, uh, he's leaning into the fact that he is a different editor for the podcast than uh, yeah. either of us. And I'm wondering, Jeff, I'm wondering whether he spent all weekend concocting this, you know? <laughs> well, well, Simone, uh, I, I have to say, podcast. It, it could be the last laugh on him because he's the person who's getting on a plane next week, not us. <laughs> yeah, isn't he just? But um, I too will be on a plane at some point. But let me come back. Let me ground this back onto uh, <laughs> pull this pull this back into the into the terminal um, at the boarding gate. So Steve, just stay with the NIH director. You know, here am I sitting in Washington D.C. and I'm like, he's gone till the end of the year. That's term time. So why is this, what's so difficult about this calendar? How how long does he have to nominate somebody? Uh, I actually think it's too late um, to get somebody nominated and confirmed before the end of the year. Whoever he nominates is going to have to go through uh, confirmation hearings. That's going to take a while for the help committee to schedule those hearings. Those hearings are going to be really contentious. Uh, there's a lot of things that a lot of people have strong feelings about NIH right now, ranging from COVID uh, conspiracy theories to uh, abortion politics, fetal tissue research, drug pricing, whether NIH should march in on patents that, um, that the government has ownership of and use that as a way to reduce prices. All of those issues have to be hashed out. A lot of people have different opinions on them. I don't see any way that that can happen between now and the end of the year. If in January, the president is facing a Republican-controlled Senate, as I said, it's quite possible that Rand Paul will be chairing that committee. If not, he's certainly going to be on it. All of these issues are going to be live in January, and it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get an NIH director confirmed if there's Republican control of the, of the Senate. And what impact does that have if we sort of go with an interim for the foreseeable future? I think that it's a tremendous missed opportunity. Right now, Larry Tabak is the acting NIH director. He's certainly competent. He's not going to do anything to disrupt American biomedical research, which is both good and, and bad, I think. It's, it's good, of course. You don't want um, negative changes to happen, but I think that anyone looking at it objectively and looking at the NIH budget and looking at the amount of science that's coming out of it would say that we could do better. And in order to do better, we're going to need leadership. We're going to need somebody leading NIH who has got new ideas and is willing to be unpopular because anybody who's going to make the necessary changes is going to disturb things. And uh, that simply isn't going to happen under an acting director who doesn't have the clout that Senate confirmation brings with it. 
Excellent. And then you mentioned um, some bags getting thrown overboard, Steve. Are there any really key bits that might get lost in the shuffle in a, in a streamlined burr bill? Yeah, ironically, I think that the most consequential thing that could be kicked out of the user fee reauthorization legislation is a bill that he co-sponsored and has championed and wants to include in user fee reauthorization, the Valid Act, which is a bill that completely revamps the way that FDA regulates diagnostics. It puts laboratory-developed tests and in vitro diagnostics on a, a level playing field. It institutes a risk-based approach for pre-market review, pushes a lot of FDA oversight into the post-market arena, and includes a, a number of other reforms that I think are, are really essential. The pandemic demonstrated a lot of the flaws in the regulatory regime for devices in the United States, and the Valid Act would correct them. It's not going to be a part of the bill if there's a clean bill. There are other things that people have wanted, and I think that are a lot of them are, are positive changes to the way that FDA regulates uh, dietary supplements, cosmetics, and other things. And there are also language in the reauthorization bill that reverses some federal court decisions that have gone against FDA on orphan drug regulation and uh, combination products regulation that the agency thinks uh, are really important to protect public health. And timeline on all this? That's the really interesting thing. So user fees expire the last day of September. The FDA has contracts with its unions that say that it has to give 60 days notice of layoffs. So in theory, and in the past, the way that FDA has interpreted this, the deadline would be August 1. If Congress hasn't enacted reauthorization legislation and the president signed it by August 1, FDA would have to send out notices to thousands of his employees telling them that their jobs are at risk. When Scott Gottlieb was FDA commissioner, he avoided doing that because he made the argument that Congress was just about to reauthorize user fees and that it wasn't necessary to send those notices. I'm not sure that, uh, that Rob Califf, the FDA commissioner, could make a similar argument today. Burr is telling people that it's not necessary to send those notices because FDA has got unspent user fee money, enough to keep it going into November, possibly all the way through to the end of the year. So he says, look, you don't need to disrupt anything. You don't need to send out those pink slips. You can just let Congress do its thing and come back in September after the August recess, reauthorize all of the user fees before September 30th, and everything will be fine. It remains to be seen whether FDA's leadership and uh, HHS's leadership and their attorneys agree with that interpretation, but we'll know soon enough. All right. Interesting summer in Washington for a change. I prefer the sleepier version, but you take the uh, boarding passes that are handed to you, Steve. May the travel gods be with you and everyone else who is on the road this summer. All right. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provide the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare, 
and education. We will catch you next week. Thanks for tuning in.